You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. One of the kind of ever-present truths that we live with is that we're not going to go very far in our lives. We're not going to go from one point to the other. won't be very long. That we're not going to face some level of a problem, some level of a question, even in some sometimes matters of crisis. They will come financially. They will come insecurity around jobs and they will come in relationships there will never be a shortage of those things that 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 cause us to emotionally shift from a place of security and steadiness to a place of question and uncertainty again probably if i if we were to just go around the room you could Tell me about the last one that you were facing or one that you are anticipating. We live with them. Some of them are larger, some of them are smaller, but we live with them. We live with all manners of uncertainty. And there's only one answer to it. I don't have a long set of answers for anyone who comes in my office, comes into our lives, comes into this sanctuary with those questions, that uncertainty, that enormity of question, I just have one. Uh, hold, hold your hand there or put a marker in Second Chronicles 20. I want us to just take a quick trip over to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 are verses that once somebody starts reading them, most people can kind of jump in and help finish. Proverbs 3, beginning with with verse 5. Because here is the answer. Here is the single answer to to those questions, those life-shifting questions. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all thy heart. That's your answer. What will stabilize you? What will secure you? What will bring you to a place of true north? What will keep you from wavering? What will keep you on course? A a hope that your circumstances will change? A hope in in a change in fortune? A hope in a change in someone's heart? Try to put your faith there and see what the outcome is. What is the answer? It's written here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. There's the answer. The question then becomes, why don't we Trust him. What's happening that we don't trust him? 
Well, there's a few that are, that are really pretty obvious before I start reading this passage in 2 Second, in Second Chronicles. There's this determination in teaching, even within, within the Christian church. One of those obstacles that keeps us from trusting him is that we've been taught to be self-sufficient. We've been taught to lean on our own understanding. We've been taught to lean on those things we see, lean on those things we know, and the outcome will always be the same. This, this one's going to sound a bit wrong. We're too quick to call on others to help us. Can you see how that could be harmful to the building of trust? We, we cultivate friendships. We cultivate relationships. We cultivate those. And, and under God's blessing, we do those. But, but somebody else's faith becomes my crutch. Somebody else becomes my way out or my way through. Because I didn't have the trust in the Lord, instead of having that patience with him, sitting with him, hearing him, letting him direct my path, letting him answer my question, letting him bring the comfort, we reach out to others and they become the answer to our questions. So when another question comes up, what are we going to do? What do we learn to do? Make that call, reach out, get that other person, their resources, their help, all those things become the answers instead of a trust in the Lord. We're leaning on that which we know. A third one that causes us to question and, and, and diminish our trust in God is that we feel distant from God. That's probably one of the larger ones. Most of us will acknowledge that we can be close, but when, we're, when we get real honest with ourselves, we don't feel it. We know we're supposed to be. We want to say it, but we don't feel it. Any problem with any of that? Is there a base? Is, is the basis of my relationship with God based on feeling? No, I've got a spirit to spirit relationship with God. It's based on truth, it's based on revelation, it's based on encounter. All of those things, it's, a, it's based on our being able to hear him, being able to see him, being able to watch for him, all of those things in the spirit. Now, will that create an emotional outcome? Absolutely. But the basis of my relationship is spirit. And if I will walk in that spirit, it will become far easier to trust him. The other thing this fourth one that I wrote down here that keeps us from trusting God, as it's described in Proverbs chapter 3, is that we have cultivated the bad habit of I thought somebody would guess. Worry. We have cultivated the bad habit of worry. What does that look like? Where do we go quickest? Anything going on, where do we step first? We've learned this. I can step into this, into, into Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding. I can step that way. 
and say, Father, I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. Or I can step the most natural way we step into this position of worry. We're really remarkably good at it. Something we don't see, something we don't understand, some hope we have that seems to be going unmet, we begin to worry. Begin to worry. I see, you know, have a family member that's not saved, have somebody that's not quite doing what we want, so we begin to worry about it. What's, What's being accomplished in the worry? Nothing. But we've cultivated worry as a bad habit. It's kind of become the expectation. It's, it has become, unfortunately, it has become the norm. I made a note here, too. You will never outgrow worry. Anybody want to tell me differently? You will never outgrow worry. I say that as encouragement to Matthew and to Jaron so that y'all will know that... Uh, that you can, be, you can be 64 years old and you, and you won't have outgrown that. It seems inherently to stick around. Well, let's look at this story because this is a remarkable story. Most of us have read it. Most of us know it. But this is a, this is a story where you're, you're stacking problems. You're stacking is an enormity of challenge in front of someone and it's amazing to watch what happens when trust is in place. Verse 1, chapter 20. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other, other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria, and behold, they go in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gadi. So now we have the Moabites coming, and we have the Ammonites coming, and do you think that that would create a cause for worry? I don't think there's any question. When you have that enormity of a problem in front of you and you realize it's not a problem I can avoid because they're coming after me. It's aggressive and they're coming after me. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah. So we take this first question, at least in the beginning, which even even though he was afraid, I I don't think I could get rid of the fear here. I don't think I could find anybody that wasn't going to have that initial reality of fear because something is coming against me. But what did he do? He took that step of trust. He took that step in the direction where he knew he had to go. He called a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, I want us to pay attention to this. O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? 
I'm going to ask you from the beginning. Who is he trying to convince? Is he trying to, is he trying to remind God of who he is? He's trying to remind himself. He is running down this record of all these things because what is one of those things that I will tell you today? You will not have trust without, uh, without, I'm sorry, experience. You will not trust God without encounter. If you've never known him, if you've never heard him, if he's never been present in a former struggle, if he's never been with you in a time of loneliness, if he's never brought comfort when no one else could, if he, if he, if he has never brought revelation that will set you free, if you have no encounter, I will assure you it will be very difficult to trust a God that you have never, ever experienced. So what's Jehoshaphat doing? He's reminding himself, probably reminding the congregation of all that God has done. So let's continue. He stood in the congregation and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power in might, so that none is able to withstand thee? It's like, It's coming across like, God, I want to remind you who you are. Because in just a minute, I'm going to ask you something that's based on the fact that you need to remember that which I'm, which, which I'm telling you. And he goes on. Are not thou our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name's saying, if when evil comes upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. So the review is over. God, I have presented the facts. I've reminded you adequately of who you are, where we are. We're in a place that you promised us. You've given us the assurance. Now, God, I've, I've reminded you of everything I need to remind you. Now comes the request. O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do. Good summary. Good position. Right place of Jehoshaphat's heart. What's he acknowledging? Father, I can't trust us. I can't trust me. I'm not a good enough king. We are not a strong enough people. We can't trust our own understanding. We can't lean in our own direction. I can't raise up that which I don't have. I don't have the strength to come against that kind of obstacle. I don't have anything to bring against that kind of problem. So even though he's acknowledged all these things that God have done, now he's taken that true step of trust and, says, and makes the acknowledgement, Father, I can't, I truly can't. We don't have the might. We don't have the strength. 
We don't know what to do. But then there is this powerful conjunction. Changes every story. I don't care if it's a relationship or financial or physical, medical, whatever it happens to be. I can't change the narrative. I can't adjust the story. The conjunction, but, is, is right there in that place. But our eyes are upon you. What's Jehoshaphat saying? I've assessed the size of the army. That, that opposition coming from me, for me, I have, I have stated now that which you are. Father, I, I need to know where to step. And the conclusion is absolutely correct. I cannot trust me. I cannot trust my wisdom. I can't trust my knowledge. I can't trust my strength, my clarity, my plan. I can't trust it. But he's this, he says it so beautifully. Wow, that's very appropriate. Why didn't you let it play? I can remember another time in your life when something began to play. Are you embarrassed? Okay, good. Good. Our eyes are upon thee. Verse 13. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. What a moment. You want, to, you, you want to see a leader in action? We would say, wouldn't it be more impressive if he had figured out some strategy, some way, that he could have taken that meager army that he had against such a foe and watched how he maneuvered, how he became this great military warrior, how he, you know, this, these, are, these are the things we used to learn when we'd watch those old Western movies there would be this band of bad guys coming and the, and, the, and the one good guy in the town, all he had was six guns and, and these ladies and children and they got to figure out how to win. It makes a great movie. How creative they were. They do all kinds of things to win. We watch, we watch those movies and watch the underdog win. Well, here we're watching Jehoshaphat, this amazing king, do what seems very rare in our eyes today. Verse 14. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, a, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Think that would calm anything? Think of your question right now. Think of your uncertainty right now, that which is challenging you the most. Would it make any difference to you if the Holy Spirit comes to rest in the middle of your question? Would it calm anything? It would calm everything. 
Well, guess who wants to be found in the middle of your question? We cry out and we ask, and he will, we want the answer, and God says, I'll do better than that. I'll send you a person. It won't come as a note. It'll come as a person. I'm going to put the person of the Holy Spirit right in the middle of your challenge and your problem. Verse 15, and he said, Hearken ye all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, it's God's. If you're facing something, for those of you sitting here or those who might someday hear this on a computer or on some cell phone somewhere, consider the current story the current question that you're facing, that someone stands in the middle of that story, as it, you know, because this is actually a man speaking, but this man is speaking because the Spirit of God has come to indwell that man in this moment. So that it's actually the Spirit that's speaking. He just happens to be speaking through the voice of this man. Would it make any difference? In the nature of your question, if, if, that, if the Holy Spirit spoke and said to you in, the, in these terms, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, don't be discouraged, don't be, don't be concerned, don't fret, don't murmur, don't question, don't self-reflect, don't project, great answer. Don't project by reason of this great question, this great concern, this great problem that is now marching squarely against you, be not dismayed. Do not be worried. Do not be afraid. Why? For this battle is not yours, but God's. We've heard this theme over and over over the last few weeks from Parker talking. Again, I, I just use these things because they're such building blocks. I can't hardly preach without going back and talking about the building blocks he's been using in, in, flowing into this one. Again, for Parker, we heard it from Graham Cook. One of the great errors, in, again, in the believing world is that we keep trying to bring human effort against human problems. And, and we know the outcome. We will never move the problem. But as kingdom citizens, we're not limited to human effort. We can bring something supernatural in, against that problem. And so we can shortly be standing on top of that problem that was bothering us the most. Again, that's not possible for me to stand on top of that problem until I recognize just what happened in, in this moment when the, when the Holy Spirit says, that wall you're trying to move, that is not yours to move. That brick wall you're trying to push over is not yours to push over. It's mine. You let me loose against that. 
Now, in a few minutes, you're going to get to stand on top of it because that which had the greatest power over you will have no power over you. You'll be standing on top of that, which was formerly your worst problem. Battle's not yours, but God's. And then this instruction. Tomorrow, I'd like to just pause here and say, okay, the Holy Spirit has made this promise. The Holy Spirit has said, great challenge, fear not, not your battle, it's mine. What happens here is, Jan said, if you begin to project what God's going to do on your behalf, do what? You're going to miss it. Because let's do a little, let's do a little imaginary projection here. What kind of a plan would you come up with in this moment that God was going to use to defeat that enemy? Now, real time, sitting here in this story, what would your hope be? I don't know, but it wouldn't be this. You're, you're now getting in the category of Gideon, who's coming against an army of 100,000 plus, and he's got 32,000, and God's saying, oh, man, Gideon, that's way too many. You know, we need, to, we need to get rid of a few of these. So by, by one means or another, he gets rid of 20,000 first. He ends up getting rid of, rid of about 11,700 of the rest of those 12,000. So now Gideon's got 300 men coming against an army of 100,000. And God's saying, That's, we're, we, about got, we got the odds right. Because I'm not going to have anybody say, my, my, isn't Gideon a good leader? When we finish this battle, what are they going to be able to say? What an amazing God. What an amazing God. So let's look at the plan that God gives to these people. Tomorrow, go ye down against them. Behold, they came up by the cliff of Ziz. So they, like, you're not even going to have to wonder where they're coming from. I'm going to tell you the path that they're going to be on. And you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Sound like an effective battle plan? I want you to go out there, start with, I want you to go out against them. This is where you're going to find them. Can you see this, this army of Jehoshaphat, this mass of people, men, women, children, marching out in battle against this army of Ammon, the Ammonites, and Mount Seir? Who knows how many people? I wouldn't even begin to guess. And here they go, and they're marching out, and then God says, now when you get there, I want you to be still. Now, what is the last thing I'm going to want to do? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get two or three of you, and we're going to get our heads together. It's like, okay, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. I really, I really love, it's just such a powerful moment when some of us many years ago went to St. Louis to a Promise Keepers rally. 
There were three Suburbans of us, and I still only know we got there driving through the night by the grace of God. That was one of the more foolish things I think I've ever suggested in my life, but we got there. <clears throat> so we come out of this, this Coliseum thing. At the same time, the baseball game is over. So downtown St. Louis is packed, and they've got a mass transit system that gets people out of there. We rode it in there, and we're about to ride it out. But, but at every stop, there was a gathering of, I don't know, 30, 40, 100, 150, 200 people all waiting to get on that. So we had people that were just standing there waiting. So it was me and Scott Parrish, I know, and Mike. Were you in that group? Several of us said, okay, I'm, there's got to be a faster way out of here than this. We'll, go to, we'll walk down to another station. We'll do something. We'll find a faster way. So we're, we break huddle and we move. And about the time we get back, our guys are getting on the, getting on the mass transit. There was not a single thing in me that says it's acceptable to stand here and not try to find a better way. I would, I would have been the guy at the Red Sea, you know, this thing, I really think we can build a boat. If we work hard, get our minds together, get enough matchsticks, we can build us a raft and get these people over this, over this Red Sea. The last thing I would have wanted to, to hear God say is be still. But the plan becomes even more bizarre. In Jehoshaphat, verse 18, bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now, what's happened so far? Nothing. The enemy's still out there. They're still coming. The battle hasn't even been faced. They haven't gone out. But isn't it amazing, simply based on the trust of this encounter that they've had with God, all that Jehoshaphat reviewed, everything that's happened up to this point, they have bowed before the Lord to worship him because what will trust do? It will acknowledge him in all his ways. This is the life of a believer. This isn't the exception. He's describing here what is to be our norm. Verse 19, And the Levites and the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Verse 20, And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the, the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Now the plan's beginning to take some real shape. I, I'm going to pick out the biggest, mightiest warriors and put them in the back because I'm going to put these singers in the front. If you can sing pretty, you're going, you're going first. 
And I'm, and I'm even going to pick the song, and the song is, is going to be Praise the Lord for His Mercy Endures Forever. That's hymn number 327. Everybody, get your books. We're ready to march. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. And when they began to sing and to praise. You see, I have a hard time disconnecting that. What was in that praise? What was in that worship? How did Proverbs 3, 5 begin? What was the first word? Trust. To praise him. When the battle's not even started, to praise him when the enemy is still there. They're still formidable. They're, all those armies are still there. All those soldiers are still there. The, the size of the problem has not gone down one bit. The challenge is ever in front of them, and here they are. They begin to sing, they begin to praise. That will not happen. Absent that first single syllable word, trust. The second single syllable word right behind it, trust God. Ambushments set against them. And they began to destroy one another. Verse 24, and when Judah came Forward the watchtower in the wilderness. They looked unto the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And there were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. Now we look at that last part and say that was a bit tacky. It was a bit distasteful carrying off the stuff that they, that they had on them. I guess in, in, in one perspective it is. But we will never be in one of those fights that we don't walk away with the, with the glory we had assigned to that enemy. See, I, I, the most dominant place where we can see that is in the story of David and Goliath. Who was everybody afraid of? Who did everybody admire? Who did everybody look at with awe? It was Goliath. But after the battle, who walked away with that honor? Who walked away with that awe? Who walked away even in measure feared why would, after that, why would the king try to kill David? Why would King Saul try to kill David? Because David had assumed the power and the honor of that which was once their enemy. Now, that's a different kind of spoil, but it is a spoil because I, we need to know that that enemy that has come against us and when it is defeated, that power left that enemy 
and now becomes confirmed in me. That is a strange version of taking the spoil of an enemy. David took that position. Again, we know it well when they were coming in and they were singing these songs over Saul. What were they saying? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. See, that which was the former awe over this Philistine giant now belonged to the shepherd boy who took him down. You want to build a legacy. You want to build a personal history with God. You begin to assess the size of the enemies and the victories that were won on your behalf. And it will build that which it built for David, which it built here. We see it as a, as a bit inappropriate to take those spoils. And God says, that which I have destroyed on your behalf now becomes mine. Well, and it wasn't like they were going to need it anymore. They weren't going to need it anymore. They, they weren't going to need it anymore. Uh, and, you know, the whole thing was probably just a very practical thing. They were probably just walking around saying, we can't leave this stuff out here. Somebody's going to pick it up. It's going to cause a fight. Let's just go ahead and pick it up and take it. Yeah. It was just a practical answer. It probably wasn't, it probably wasn't for any other reason. They just kind of like, like some of my, my relatives. They're just very practical. <laughs> yeah. Can't have this stuff laying around out here. Take it home. We might, we might find some use for it someday. What a, what a remarkable story. There are some stories we find in this Old Testament of Gideon, of David, of Jehoshaphat in this moment. When there is nothing here, nothing left, there is no army to turn to. There is no resilience. There is no strength. I'm left with one thing. It's trust. It's trust. Any of you here ever rode on one of those, uh, what do they call them, those boards that seem to kind of float, those skateboards? Hoverboards. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> Matthew, you have? Uh, I've many miles on the Do what? I've many miles on the wow. Have you, Jaron? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is that the rolling one? Or are you standing at like flips? No, I, I don't, it, what does it do? Hoverboard's not a good term. Okay. It doesn't really hover. It rolls, right? right. Lean, yeah, forward and backward like that. Yeah, okay. Uh, how did you get good at that? Put my hands on the walls and uh, try the hallway and try to over carpet so the ball doesn't hurt. Yeah. You get better the more you do it. So you step on it now and it's a pretty natural thing. Pretty easy now. You trust yourself on it and you trust it to do what it's supposed to do. How did that happen? How did he gain that trust? 
experience, testing, trying, letting that which said what it would do, let it do it on your behalf. Why do we struggle to trust him? Why isn't trust our natural response to a God who's made extreme promises? He often doesn't work fast enough. Yeah, we've got a schedule. We've got a schedule that we want to be on. One of those things that I asked you a few weeks ago about, you know, this Graham Cook story, and this was a true story for him, that he he was offered this car. He's a car guy to see how fast it would go. And he really did get stopped at 160 miles an hour. And the, when the police officer got him stopped, he said he couldn't catch him. The police officer couldn't catch him. But he finally had to slow down, and the police officer finally caught up to him. And uh, the, the, the police officer said, do you know how fast you were going? He said, yeah, I sure do. He said, if you'll give me a ticket, I want to frame it. And then, and then his answer was, what would you expect me to do with this car? 162 miles an hour on that ticket. He said, but what would you expect me to do with, with this car, this capability? And I ask you this question. We have, what, what would you do with the favor of God? If you had that opportunity to be in that car, with 100 miles of straight road, ask this question, what would you do? What, when you sit down in it, what would you do first? Well, you'd probably put it in gear. That probably would be handy. But the, the typical answer is put it on the floor. What would you do when you stepped in, strapped yourself in the favor of God? What should we do? Put it on the floor. Because we've never even begun to examine the boundaries of the favor of God. We don't have, even after many years, we don't have personal history of getting on these things, holding onto the wall and trusting God. We don't try Him. We don't test Him. We don't know the boundaries of His love. We don't know the fullness of His power. We don't know, we don't examine it, and so our faith in him is on ve- in a very measured way, and that because that faith is very measured, the trust is measured as well. To trust him, to absolutely trust him. To say, Father, I rest in you, and you alone. My problem is answered in you, in you alone. There will never be another resource, another answer, another possibility with the capability that you can bring. Father, I trust you. I trust you. I still love the example. It's it's an overly simplified one. But again, every one of you here is displaying a belief, a faith, and a trust. You're sitting in these chairs. You walked in with a full belief that if you sat in them, 
they would hold you. But that belief would not give you rest. The rest came when, when, the, when your faith, the weight of your body, by faith, eased onto this chair, and the chair went to work on your behalf. But why didn't you just jump up? Yep, it held you, but why didn't you just immediately jump out of the chair? Because when you were resting in it, one second, two seconds, a minute, two minutes, what began to form? Trust. You're sitting there now, not just because you believed. You're not sitting there just because of your faith. You're sitting there because you trust based on all of those previous moments when that chair proved its adequacy to you. Trust is built. If we don't have encounter, if we don't have experience, it will not build. So we wonder why the church is absent trust and why we're offered so many secular answers. It's because the church itself doesn't have encounter experience and hasn't built the trust in the one to whom we can say, Father, you and you alone. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.